Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and Philosophy Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today my guest is Professor David Shoemaker. His new book is titled Responsibility from the Margins. It is published by Oxford University Press. Shoemaker is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy and the Murphy Institute of Tulane University. Moral life is infused with emotionally charged interactions. When a stranger carelessly steps on my foot, I not only feel the pain in my foot, I'm also affronted by her carelessness. Whereas the former may cause me to wince, the latter arouses resentment, which I may communicate by an emotionally toned protest, um, excuse me, or just, hey. With such a protest, I, in an admittedly small way, hold the stranger responsible for what she's done. But of course there are cases where the stranger who steps on my foot does not manifest an objectionable carelessness. After all, she may have been pushed, or perhaps she had been feeling faint. These conditions mitigate resentment. They render my emotional response unfitting and in need of revision. Now, none of this should come as a surprise. In fact, it should sound trivial. Distinctively philosophical questions arise, however, when we consider cases where agents are, in certain ways, compromised or impaired. Imagine that the stranger is in the grip of dementia, or in a fit of rage that has rendered her unable to control the motion of her limbs. Would resentment be fitting in these kinds of cases? Now, what if the stranger is cognitively incapable of empathy, and so is unable to see what reason she has to avoid stepping on my foot? What then? In short, we may ask when certain facts about the condition and capacities of individuals render them wholly unfitting targets for responsibility responses such as resentment. What are we morally to make of such agents? In his book, Responsibility from the Margins, David Shoemaker proposes a tripartite view of responsibility that can make sense of our responses to persons whose agency is compromised. The book brings together high-level philosophy with a deep appreciation for the empirical details concerning the various forms of marginal agency that are discussed. It's a lot to talk about here. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, David Shoemaker. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Very good. How are you doing? Oh, doing fine. Thank you for joining me for uh, a discussion of your book on New Books and Philosophy. Thanks a lot for having me. Great privilege. Great. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to our podcast. My guest, as you just heard, is David Shoemaker. We're going to be talking about his fascinating book. Uh, It's titled Responsibility from the Margins, which is published by Oxford University Press. 
Now, Dave's book takes up puzzles um, related to the moral responsibility of persons who are plausibly regarded as compromised in their agency in various ways, either psychologically or um, emotionally, um, cognitively, uh, and so on. Um, there's a great deal to talk about uh, here, and uh, Dave lays out a, um, a pretty detailed conception of responsibility that he argues can make sense of um, some of these cases where it looks as if an agent is uh, responsible in some senses, but not others. Um, so there's a lot to talk about and a lot of philosophy to be done. Um, but why don't we begin where we typically do, uh, that is with the author. So Dave, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, so I was born in uh, Indiana um, and uh, moved around quite a bit. I never lived any place more than three years at a time because my dad was a preacher. And so there's a lot of moving around. Uh, so Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, I went to high school in Oklahoma. Um, so whenever anybody asks me, where did you grow up? My response is basically to shrug my shoulders. Um, but I went to uh, college in a small uh, town in western New York and was really interested in studying law eventually. And so I was on the pre-law track and I was told by my counselor, philosophy is a good uh, uh, subject of study for that. So I took one philosophy course and it was on ethics and it just completely blew me away. I, I had never really been challenged before in the classroom and this one really did it. And I want to give a shout out to my professor all the way through my undergrad years, Brian, Dr. Brian Sayers, who uh, uh, just influenced me tremendously. And so I majored in philosophy and loved it every step of the way, but I was still planning on going to law school. And so after my undergrad years, I took a couple of years off and I worked at a couple of different uh, law firms. One was in Manhattan. The other was in uh, Century City in L.A. And uh, I was just doing word processing. Uh, but during that period, <laughs> I saw how utterly miserable <laughs> the attorneys were that I worked with. Um, there were bathroom, there were showers in the office and they were expected to use those showers because they were expected to be there 18 to 20 hours a day. Um, the junior associates were really just moving commas around. They were there all the time. They looked completely beaten down as human beings. And the, uh, the partners worked even more and also looked even more beaten down. They were really rich, but they were really uh, beaten down rich people. And, uh, and in the meantime, I had some friends that I'd gone to uh, high school with who just were telling me how miserable they were as, as lawyers. So I decided there was, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't live that life. And I thought about my uh, philosophy degree and I thought, well, why not? So I applied to uh, graduate school and didn't know anything about it. Didn't know what I was expected to, to do, um, how to prepare or anything. And by some miracle or other, I got into UC Irvine. And um, when I was going to uh, uh, Irvine, I had originally thought I was going to do something in applied ethics. But then I took a, a class with Greg Kafka, the late, great uh, Greg Kafka. Um, and he was it was an intro course, but he was teaching personal identity. And that really grabbed my interest. 
So I uh, decided to write a dissertation on personal identity and ethics and the relation between our practical concerns and uh, demands for identity across time. And so it was a lot of Derek Parfit kind of stuff. Um, and I came up with a view that I've since disavowed. Um, but uh, in focusing on the uh, various kinds of practical concerns that we've got and how they relate to identity, I came to rest on um, uh, responsibility as something that really seemed very important and was complicated. Um, Greg Kafka was the original dissertation director for me, but he died a year in, and Gary Watson took over after that. And I'd taken several seminars with Gary, but I thought, and I, I wasn't interested in pursuing responsibility because I basically thought Gary had answered all the relevant questions. <laughs> and so why compete with that? Um, but about 10 years after I got out of uh, grad school, I realized, as I said, that I think responsibility is a really complicated, interesting field. I went back, and that's when I sort of rediscovered uh, P.F. Strawson's essay, Freedom and Resentment. And in thinking about that, thinking about Gary's work, thinking about the work of Harry Frankfurt, I started also to be really interested in how to treat the responsibility of real life agents, which which wasn't really a focus of the literature, I'll say. <laughs> uh, people were much more interested in science fiction cases and these crazy wantons. Yes, <laughs> yes, and crazy thought experiments. And and so I wrote a paper um it was published in 2007 that really started to explore some real life marginal agents and uh, followed it up in a paper in 2011 that first kind of sketched out the tripartite theory. And so the book really is a development uh, in great detail of those two approaches, um, being a pluralist about responsibility, but also focused on real life cases. Well, excellent. So um, let's dive into the book. Um I usually like to ask as a first question a sort of a question about the background or the sort of um, philosophical framework that's presupposed or the methodology that's at work in the book. Um, but um, in the case of your book, Responsibility from the Margins, um, there is a, a, a sort of big question looming about uh, the approach, which is um, uh, connects with something you've already said. Uh, you characterize the book as an attempt to complete um, or fill in uh, part of the Strawsonian framework. In some places, you characterize it as um, uh, sort of trying to make good on um, uh, Strawson's aspirations. Um, can you tell us a little bit a little bit about that background? What does it mean? What, what does it mean when you talk about the Strawsonian framework? I suspect a lot of our listeners will know some of this, but maybe not all. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, Strawson's essay, Free, uh, "Freedom and Resentment." Um, basically tried to move the debate about uh, free will and determinism, uh, move beyond that debate. And so it characterized a couple of the different approaches to um, free will. And for most people who are doing work in free will, the, there's, there's got to be a practical payoff to it. And the practical payoff comes in thinking about responsibility. So free will is typically taken to be the crucial con control condition for people to be morally responsible agents. And so what Strawson basically did was say, instead of trying to start at the front end and trying to get clear on the nature of free will and whether or not we can be free if determinism is true, let's start at the back end. Let's start at the responsibility stuff and start thinking uh, carefully, not about the kind of institutional responsibility practices that we've got, uh, punishment, official sanctioning and so forth, but thinking about 
the ways in which responsibility works at the just mundane, interpersonal human level amongst actual agents. And so to start thinking about the relevant kinds of attitudes that are the ground of our interpersonal responsibility practices, what he calls reactive attitudes. And he focuses on uh, resentment and indignation and mentions several others uh, that include gratitude, forgiveness and love, hurt feelings and so forth. Um, but really, the focus of the essay is on the nature of uh, resentment and indignation. And what he tries to do is um, think about when our, um, um, our resentment of someone is appropriately suspended. So think about cases that are exceptions to a kind of default that we've got. So when we interact with one another, we've got this default attitude. We're ready with resentment if they wrong us. and um, the thought is, well, sometimes we're going to recognize some facts about them that are going to cause us to suspend our reactive attitudes. And so let's try to figure out the nature of our responsibility practices by focusing on these excuses and exemptions from responsibility. And so he articulates a number of different kinds of conditions that typically cause us to suspend our reactive attitudes. And then you know, kind of offers in a sentence or two a theory that is to unify the various um, excuses and exemptions. And uh, the theory that he offers is known as a quality of will theory. So um, to get at that, you can think about a case in which we're on a on a subway together and it's really tight quarters and it's and it's packed. And in one in in and your foot lands on mine and it caused me a kind of pain. In one kind of case, I look up and I see that um, it was because the subway car lurched and you and in restoring your balance, your foot landed on my foot. And so resentment is appropriately suspended. In another kind of case, in the second kind of case, though, I can see that you were looking right at me and with malice, a forethought, put your foot directly onto mine, uh, deliberately causing me pain. Well, it's only in the second that I'm going to respond appropriately with resentment. And so the difference, though, is not in terms of any you know, physical movement. It's not um, in term. There's no difference in terms of the pain that was caused. Instead, the only difference is in terms of the quality of will that you showed. So um, Strawson uses that phrase quality of will and refers to uh, the fact that we you know, really care a lot about how we're treated by others. And so when we're mistreated, it, it, it generates this emotional response that we've got. And if we focus on those practices and we look, I think uh, this isn't as clear in the essay, but I think if we look to the kind of um, uh, conditions that make those responses appropriate, then we can tell a story. It's a normative story about the nature of responsibility. It's quality of will theory of responsibility. Um, and in so doing, we can completely bypass talk of free will or desert to the kinds of things that animated the ongoing free will determinism debate. Now, that last point is a matter of huge contention. <laughs> uh, I realize. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> but he does give a few little arguments for it. Uh, one is the thought that it would just be um, basically psychologically impossible for us to give up these reactive attitudes in the face of some theoretical conclusion about the nature of determinism or the truth of determinism. And there are a couple other little arguments there, but yeah, as you point out, it's uh, 
very controversial. And so in the book, I don't um, take a stand one way or the other, although I do make some ridiculously uh, provocative and only suggestive remarks in the conclusion. Well, let me just ask one sort of um, additional question about this. So the part of the Strassonian story, I take it, is not just that there are these um, uh, the, the part of what the reactive attitudes are doing is sort of expressing a demand for a certain level of regard. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. And that's how he has been most often interpreted. So Gary Watson has a really nice essay on this. And so the thought is that um, to be a responsible agent just is to be the appropriate target or to be susceptible to um, these reactive attitudes. And what the reactive attitudes do is demand um, a certain quality of regard, quality of will. Yeah, that's right. Great. Um, so uh, with with that sort of picture in place, and let me just ask a, a, a follow up, because um, it might, again, be clear to some listeners, uh, even given what you've just said. Um, but it looks as if this general framework um, where uh, we begin thinking about responsibility by looking at the practices, uh, we begin looking at the practices by looking at these sort of emotionally charged um communicative uh, events in, in some sense. Um, but your book is um, focused on um, a series of puzzles, as we might put it, um, that emerge perhaps in any theory of responsibility, but maybe they emerge a little bit more quickly uh, with this Strassen-inspired view um, about marginal agency cases, cases where it, look, it looks as if some of the facts, uh, broadly speaking now, about the agent who has um, uh, looks like they are a potential target for some uh, emotional uh, reaction. Uh, some fact about those agents sort of um, renders uh, us ambivalent about what the right response could be. So this is these are cases that look different from the you know the subway lurched cases. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the how this sort of puzzle or series of puzzles emerges within this framework? Yeah, so I mean, the way to maybe best start off is just by considering a series of cases. Good. Um, and I ask people just, you know, don't import any kind of uh, theoretical uh, machinery onto this. Just consult your feelings and, and ask yourself, how would you feel if you were faced with uh, this variety of agents? So we start with uh, Skip, who as a child loved to blow up frogs and like to terrorize his sister, but in um, meaner ways than it, seemed, than it would seem uh, typical sibling stuff uh, would, would occur. Uh, he was charming and manipulative. He charmed and manipulated his way through college. He, made his, he lied his way into a, uh, a corporate job. He married the boss's daughter while having serial affairs. His mother, knowing full well about his history, uh, said, why do you got to do this to her? And he says... We both know she's never going to know what hit her. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, again, lies uh, his way through making millions and millions of dollars and then is eventually uh, caught for uh, securities fraud. Now, you might have a kind of feeling about that character. And now suppose I add, oh, and he's a psychopath. That is to say, he uh, has severe deficits in empathy. He's emotionally callous. Um, can be charming and manipulative. And so now I ask, how do you feel about Skip? There's another kind of 
case here of uh, someone who, when things go wrong for him, he makes a mistake, for example, goes ballistic, has this huge tidal wave of emotional responses, and there's plenty of noise in his head, um, and that he gets so angry and yells and or retreats into a corner and so forth. You might, you might have a certain kind of feeling about him, and then when I fill in the story a little bit and say, oh, and he uh, has autism. Um, and he hasn't been able to communicate with anyone. He's communicated through this kind of facilitated communication to write, to tell this story. Um, you ha- I want, how do you feel about him now? Or suppose you go to your grandfather's house and uh, when he sees you, he gets up and he walks uh, with great pain over to this candy jar and brings you a chocolate and then sits down. You might have a feeling about him. And then I add, oh, and he has moderate uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Does that change in any way? Or the classic, uh, well, now classic in the philosophical literature, case of Robert Harris. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah, who uh, was a, brutally murdered two young boys who were in a car. Um, and then he, uh, once he got rid of the bodies, he sat down and ate the food, the fast food that they had just ordered, calmly asking his now terrified brother, you know, what would be fun is if we dressed up as police officers and went to the parents' house and told them about their sons being killed. Um, how do you feel about him? And then suppose that I tell you about the most unimaginable childhood that he lived through, a relentless abuse and torture and pain, um, and how he was raped repeatedly in a series of juvenile homes and so forth and so on. How do you feel now? Well, in all of these cases, what I'm ask, what I want to just ask generally, do you think that these agents are responsible agents? And I take it that the response in each case is a kind of unease. Right. But it's, it's not the unease of uncertainty, I think. It's instead the unease of ambivalence. That is to say, I think we think that, well, these agents maybe they're responsible in some ways, but not another. And so that's, those are the central kinds. That's, that's just the central um, response that I'm trying to pull out to motivate the book. There's a kind of ambivalence here. And it's an ambivalence over whether or not the agents are uh, responsible in some sense, but not another. So um, what I use that for then is to go on and talk um, and develop the, the Strassonian picture. So I think what that does is is produce a problem for the Strassonian picture as it stands. I mean, his view, remember, was, well, you know, as long as you're, uh, it's a quality of will theory, so what we're doing is trying to identify the agent's quality of will. And I think here that what's going on is there are just different kinds of wills, as you were, as it were, that um, uh, Gary Watson nicely points out that um, Children can be cruel, for example, and exhibit a certain kind of quality of will, poor quality of will, but we don't think that they're responsible. And so what these cases do is draw a number of other real life, they call marginal agents, um, who we think have a kind of quality of will in one sense, but lack a quality of will in another. Right. And just to um, uh, maybe just to, to, to sort of focus the, the puzzle, um, you know, with these ambivalence cases, one conclusion that looks looming for the Strawsonian, but seems well worth avoiding, is the conclusion that, um, particularly the psychopath case, 
um, that the people who are really unimaginably cruel are somehow um, by fa- by the fact of the depth of their cruelty respond you know off the hook of responsibility right yeah that's right that it looks as if that's you right. know the more you know the, the the worse an agent is the the less uh, intelligible their behavior looks to us yeah <laughs> and if their behavior looks unintelligible to us it's hard to ascribe to them a a, a will of any kind. And so it looks like they get off the hook if responsibility really is about, you know, calling others out on the level of regard that their behavior manifests. That's that right? right. That's right. And that can't be right <laughs> <laughs> to, to finish off the argument. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is a, uh, uh, an argument made famous by uh, offered by Gary Watson. And so, uh, yeah, the thought is if the reactive attitudes are communicating and they're communicating a demand that you regard me. And if the object of the demand is incapable of you know, securing uptake of that communication, right. then it looks like uh, they're just off the hook for responsibility. And so the psychopath or the Robert Harris's of the world just aren't responsible. And because they're not the appropriate target of various reactive attitudes, and that seems insane. Something's gone haywire. So to save the Strassonian picture, you, well, you can eat, you can go one of two directions. You can just give up Strassen, give up the Strassonian right. approach, or you can do what I'm urging, which is to go pluralistic, to offer multiple qualities of will. Uh, and so that's the, what the rest of the book is built on. Good. So why don't we pick up with that? So you offer a. Um I mean, you raise the, the kinds of problems we were just gesturing towards in a way with um, Strassonian accounts that are focused on a single quality of will or a single dimension of, of uh, or aspect of will. Um, and you want to replace this with a uh, pluralistic conception of qualities of will. And uh, I, I take it that the view is that um, our responsibility um, practices are practices of holding responsible. Um, are really attuned to three distinct kind of uh, three distinct dimensions of will or elements of will. Um, So can you tell us a little bit or run us through the the tripartite qualities of will view that you promote? Yeah. So um, and fortunately, there have been theorists who have defended each of these in a kind of monistic way. So there are some theorists, well, going back to Hume, who have defended a view that what the real target of our uh, responsibility responses, that's the, that's the broader term that I use mm-hmm. to capture try all, the, all of the emotional responses that we think of under the rubric of responsibility. So going back to Hume, um, people have thought that uh, the appropriate target of the responsibility responses is character, quality of your character. Um, others, um, more recently, uh, Tim Scanlon and uh, Angela Smith, Matt Talbert, Pamela Hieronymi, have defended a more uh, judgment view. So what we're really targeting when I get angry at you, when I resent you for stepping on my foot in the subway, is um, the poor quality of your judgment. You judged that uh, stepping on my foot as a reason was worth more than not stepping on my foot. And so that's what's really being identified. And the third view, which I think is Strawson's own view and is defended uh, really nicely recently by Michael McKenna, is a quality of regard view. That it's not the judgment that you're making. It's not the character that's being expressed. Instead, it's um, your attitude towards others. Um, how you feel about me is being expressed in a certain kind of way. And so um, each of them is 
offered as a monistic view can't account for the ambivalence that I'm presenting in these marginal cases. So as I said, you can either give up the quality of will approach or go pluralistic, and that's what I try to do. I try to say that there are three distinct qualities of will that implicate three distinct capacities that agents might have. So there's the quality of character, quality of judgment, and quality of regard. And each of those is the object of three distinct kinds of emotional responsibility responses. So character is we respond to uh, uh, certain displays of character uh, with admiration and disdain and another family of emotions that fall under that general rubric. With respect to judgment, we have kinds of emotional pairs that are very familiar to us. In the first person case, regret and pride. And so that's what typically targets the quality of our judgment, quality of our decision making, to put another rough gloss on it. And the third type is regard, and we respond to uh, good or poor uh, expressions of quality of regard with anger and gratitude. Those are the predominant paradigm kinds of pairs. And so uh, character implicates capacity for character, obviously. And so I have to, I'm going to have to say something about that. And uh, quality of judgment implicates your ability to make certain kinds of judgments. And quality of regard uh, implicates your, your being able to have certain kinds of attitudes towards other people. So that's the general project. And you, you characterize these three dimensions as attributability, answerability, and accountability? Yeah. I thought it would be really cool to have this AAA theory, but I realized <laughs> that it's just very difficult for people to remember the terminology and which one it applies to. Um, I mean, in a way, I was borrowing the terminology from the literature. People, lots of people like to talk about accountability. And the Scanlon and the Scanlonians talk about answerability. And uh, deep self-theorists like to talk about attributability. Um, but the best way to think about it is just that um, we're, we're, we're targeting quality of character, quality of judgment, and quality of regard. Can I – good. Let me just ask um, sort of uh, um, just one sort of question about the, the, the character um, leg of this. Um, you had already mentioned deep self. Uh, can you say a little bit about what, what, what we're tracking when we're tracking character? Yeah. So the, the deep self theories really got traction when people were trying to figure out how do we differentiate between um, – an ordinary thief, say, and a kleptomaniac right. or a person who wants, you know, just washing his hands to be clean and the person with OCD who repeatedly washes his hands. How do we make a distinction? And um, what people like uh, Harry Frankfurt, uh, Gary Watson, in a sense, Charles Taylor, what they did was offer a uh, deep self theory. And. The view says that there's a privileged subset of your psychic elements that belongs to you in some way and in a way that other things like uh, itches, but also certain kinds of desires and pains and so forth don't. Those aren't part of who you are. So when the uh, attitudes in the privileged subset express themselves, that does represent you. You are responsible for those. And when the attitudes or whatever they are, the psychic goings on that are expressed that aren't part of your deep self, then that doesn't express who you are. And so the thought was, well, the kleptomaniac in stealing isn't expressing who he is, so he's not responsible for it. Um, whereas the ordinary thief 
uh, is. He's expressing some aspect of himself. And so the thought is that uh, – so what I want to do is connect up the, the thought – talk about the deep self here and traits and – sorry, attitudes that are attributable to agents in a way that grounds things like admiration and disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now I'm forgetting how that sentence started off, but I want to – oh, yeah, to connect up the talk of right. self to the character, to talk of character. And because I, the, these are the relevant attitudes, they're erotic, they respond to certain kinds of character traits. So what is it to have a character? And um, I try to argue uh, here again, I go pluralistic. There have been two distinct monistic traditions. One is the view that it's some non-rational elements of the self, things like um, certain kinds of desires or maybe cares. And another strand says, no, it's got to have evaluation. It's got to be your evaluative take on the world. Those are the only things that represent who you are. <laughs> and I think there's good reason to, again, go pluralist and say, um, yes, the evaluation is a crucial part. Your evaluative stance on the world, um, when traits express that, they are attributable to you. That's part of your deep self, who you really are. Um, but also elements, attitudes, and so forth that express certain non-rational elements that implicate certain kinds of emotional dispositions you've got, cares, those also can represent who you are, even though you judge that they're not worth the time of day. Mm. So we take both of those together, cares and commitments. Those are, I think, uh, what character consists in, but also certain combinations of those cares and commitments, the way they might be tied together in certain respects, because sometimes cares kind of constrain the commitments you've got and vice versa. And those are, uh, those connect up nicely in certain respects to talk of character traits. So Mm -hmm. the idea then is to say, yes, there is a privileged subset uh, when these attitudes are expressed, that's expressive of the deep self. It grounds admiration or disdain or the relative or other uh, emotions in that family. And so we can use this to distinguish the person, uh, the kleptomaniac from the thief, um, but also say something about the nature of character that's being expressed. Great. So some of our responsibility reactions then are sort of attaching to or tracking or targeting um, those kinds of attributions. Then. Yes, that's correct. Good. So let me ask a similar question about the judgment uh, leg of this. Yeah. Um, because one of the one of the elements of the view that I thought was um, uh, enlightening, at least um, to me, was the insistence that judgment is sort of trading in reasons that are always comparative. Yeah. So the you know, somebody's judgment is always um, an assessment not only of the 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 reason uh, th- that motivated them to act, but also the judgment that they should have acted that way rather than something else they had reason to do. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. And can you say a little bit about that? Because I, I, that seems to me totally right. <laughs> Good. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Yes. And it's it's I came to that conclusion by thinking again about appropriate kinds of emotional responses. I mean, the, the whole project really is driven by um, let's take a really close look at fitting versions of the emotional responses. And the, 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 the emotional responses I focus on in this chapter are regret and pride, in particular regret. Um, so when I regret having done something, what I'm regretting really is the road not taken. 
So I did something for a reason, and I look at this road not taken, and I wish I'd done it, done that other thing because there was a better reason to do that. So I'm thinking that um, in regretting something, what that implicates is our um, a poor quality of judgment. And that quality of judgment goes not just to the reason I had in performing the action, but uh, the worth that I assigned to that reason relative to the reason to do something else. And so I think that there's an essentially contrastive element to being responsible for uh, the quality of your judgment. Excellent. Um, yeah, that, that seems to me, I mean, for what it's worth. Worth a lot. That seems to me right. And... I should say that um, for all of the for all of the the talk about reasons and weighing reasons that goes on in this field um, in, in in this area of of, me, of you know moral theory or metaethics, um, that point over you know, seems to me to be um, underappreciated. Yeah, that there's a contrastive element to weighing reasons. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, and it has a dramatic payoff in a dispute yes. in uh, the responsibility field. Um, as we'll eventually see, that uh, people who have given quality of judgment views before this, so this is Scanlon, Hieronymi, uh, Hieronymi Smith, and Talbert, that um, they say that as long as you acted for a reason, that you can be responsible for it. And so what that does is include psychopaths, for example, right. under the rubric of having uh, poor quality of judgment, and so the appropriate target of various kinds of blame Um even though they couldn't recognize reasons to do anything else. And right. I think that's the mistake here. And that's so that there's a, there's a, a genuine payoff, I think, in the uh, Good. responsibility literature. So let, let's move on then to the sort of part two of the, so part one of the book is sort of setting out the, 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 the pluralistic qualities of, of will view. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in keeping with what you described as your you know, initial ambition, which was to stay rooted in sort of real cases with real agents, um, part two is about um, testing the tripartite view um, by way of sort of applying the, the view to um, cases of marginal agency that we um, may be more or less familiar with and then seeing whether the tripartite view seems to be able to deliver at least the most um, plausible yeah. of the uh, intuitively uh, favored results. So um, why don't we run through some of those examples because I think that it helps really to, to bring out um, you know, both what the tripartite view is and, and what its virtues are. So um, well, can I, stop you? can I stop you yeah, first? Sure. Because uh, yeah. so far we've only gotten at the table of the dual part type. Oh, view. Right. <laughs> but but I can just say something very briefly about accountability. Um, I think it's, it's driven by um, – uh, you can figure out the contours of, of accountability, I claim, uh, by looking at anger and gratitude. So in particular, I'm looking at um, anger. And what that does, I think, is pick out, um, well, obviously quality of regard. and these are slights, really. When you when you when you have poor quality of regard, you're slighting somebody, and that can consist in uh, one of two things. Um, one is to fail. To, so both of these are perceptual stances. This is the this is a I think an important move um, to have regard for somebody is just to have a certain kind of perceptual stance to see facts about them in a certain kind of way, and so there's an evaluative uh, disregard that I might have for you. Uh, where I fail to see facts about you um, 
your ends in an evaluative way in my own deliberative framework. So I just see facts about your interests as like facts about the size of your what kind of car you've got or how big your bathroom window is. Um, and the other kind of uh, disregard that can take place is emotional. And no one that I know of really has talked about this. Uh, but the idea can be brought up uh, with an example. Um, so suppose that my wife has been emotionally traumatized at work. Her boss has been berating her. She comes home and she's emotionally wrought. She's telling me uh, what has happened to her that day. And in a very emotionless voice, you know, I, I do the right thing. I, I, I pat her on the back and I say, there, there, dear. But I feel nothing. Um, that seems to be an appropriate ground of blame, blaming anger, I think. And it's because it reflects uh, something about me and our relationship that I don't care about her sufficiently um, to be to respond in an emotionally simpatico fashion. So uh, there's a value to disregard, which is failing to see facts about your ends in this reasonish way. And there's emotional disregard, which we call insensitive which is just uh, failing to respond in an emotionally simpatico fashion with somebody uh, whose fortunes have emotional fortunes have gone uh, up or down. And so uh, accountability really just is be able to see certain facts about people. Um, and that's what makes it crucially distinct from quality of judgment and quality of character. OK, so let's move on to part two. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I had that all written down and then I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of mistracked my uh, my own notes here. So great. So that's the that that's that, that those are the three planks of the view. So let's look at um at uh part two where you're testing the theory against these sort of um uh, garden variety cases of marginal agency, and you begin um with uh, cases of clinically depressed agents. Yeah. Um, and I take it that uh, these are agents that are going to test the attributability. Yeah. Uh, plank, or they're going to sort of um, uh, uh, bring about the, the occasion to analyze uh, the attributability plank. It looks as if depressed agents. In fact, even the, as you say in the chapter, the vernacular, she's not herself. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, really captures part of what's uh, what, what's going on there. So, tell us a little bit about how the tripartite uh, view deals with this kind of marginal agency. Yeah, good. So uh, this is. Um, for me, still the most complicated case, uh, and that's um, primarily because there are, there are huge. I think there are a huge variety of kinds of ways that people might be clinically depressed. Um, but there's one kind of sense where we do talk in this way that she's just not herself. And so the thought is, let's explore this and let's see um, uh, what would be necessary for someone to be off the hook for. Uh, certain kinds of aerotaic responses like disdain or admiration. So you can think of it this way. I mean, um, uh, how do we distinguish between someone who's uh, clinically depressed and doesn't get out of bed from somebody who's really lazy and doesn't want to get out of bed? And the thought is that for the clinically depressed person, that uh, attitude, whatever it is that's being expressed, is just not re representative of who she really is. Now, there's some really interesting puzzles that arise uh, from uh, looking at memoirs of people who have been clinically depressed and then thinking through our third personal responses to people who are clinically depressed. And there's a difference there um, that often, as from the third party, we're going to say that's not really who she is, whereas from the first person, the, per the, 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 the person who is depressed is thinking, this is who I am. It's just who I am when I'm depressed. 
Right. And so trying to articulate, so part of the chapter is wrestling with how do we make sense of that um, distinction? Um, can someone be wrong in their self-attributions of various kinds of attitudes? And I think that they, that they can be. Um, but as I say, this is, it's fairly complicated uh, uh, stuff. And what I'm really trying to illustrate is the flexibility of the tripartite model. Uh, in all of the marginal cases, I'm hostage in a good way, I think, to empirical fortunes. So um, as we discover more about the nature of various kinds of marginal agents, uh, then the tripartite theory can be filled in in, in ways that are going to uh, provide uh, good predictions for whether or not uh, people are responsible. So uh, I, I know that it doesn't really answer the question, but that's part of the that's part of the uh, the payoff here is that we shouldn't be so quick to say that there is an answer here, given that we don't sufficiently know all of the empirical details. Great. Um, well, I want to maybe return to the the the, the, the depression case, um, uh, but let me just see how the next um, uh, the next uh, installment runs here. Um, so. Um, the next set of cases that you discuss, um, uh, and it might be a surprise to some of our listeners that there is a very large literature <laughs> about, <laughs> about psychopaths yeah. um, and, um, and about psychopaths um, uh, in a very um, uh, special sense in that uh, philosophers interest in, sci- in sort of psychopathy um, at least within this literature, is um, different from what one might expect. <laughs> um, in fact, I was talking to a colleague, a philosopher of mind, who um, uh, has some skepticism about all this literature and says, he told me, I said, yeah, you know, the, the meta-ethicist talking about psychopaths, it's kind of like zombies. They're just yeah. a philosophical thing at this yeah. point. Um, yeah. So let's leave, let's leave that part to the side. Um uh, we already talked about one famous psychopath, Robert Harris. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how the the psychopath uh, or the, the the way of being compromised or marginal uh, uh, as a psychopath figures into the account? Yeah. So I use uh, I've written a lot about psychopaths, and um, I use uh, uh, them here to discuss both. Uh, quality of judgment and quality of regard, and in in comparison and contrast to two different other different kinds of marginal cases. So in first considering quality of regard, whether or not you can have certain kinds of uh, regard for other people, whether or not they're incapacitated with respect to that, I think about them relative to the individuals with autism. And so um, psychopaths, uh, unfortunately, they have yet to make an appearance in the DSM, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychological Disorders. Um, because of some internal squabbling, but also because it's not entirely clear that it's a unified disorder. Um, but lots of people who are in prison are diagnosed as psychopaths. But there are also lots of people out in the real world, unfortunately, who are, quote unquote, successful psychopaths. And mm-hmm. there are two different kinds of factors that go into a diagnosis of psychopathy. On one hand, there are behavioral factors. These are called factor two features. And so it's lots of recidivism and violence and so forth. Um, and the factor one 
psychopaths are the ones that uh, people like me and others in the moral responsibility literature are most interested in. And these are um, folks who, as I said earlier, uh, have decreased or no uh, empathy. They have decreased or no fear response. Um, they have very superficial to no emotional responses. Um, they are very manipulative. They are instrumental liars. They just love to lie uh, to, to just to get something from people. Um, and they may be instrumental with respect to violence, too. So there are all these features. And what I think is at the core of psychopathy is the lack of or mitigated empathy. And what that does, if you if you lack empathy for another, it prevents you from seeing uh, facts about their ends as reasons for you, because facts about people's ends just look to you like facts about the size of their car, the size of their bathroom window. Um, and it's going to prevent you from being able to see facts about them in an emotional way, given also your emotional impairments. So I think that psychopaths are really incapable of or have severely mitigated uh, quality of regard for people. Now, what that does is render the various kinds of emotional pairs that I think pick out the realm of quality of regard, renders those emotional pairs um, not just impotent, but also inappropriate. Um, now, if you've ever tried to get angry at a psychopath, you're going to see how pointless it is. Uh, they will just look at, look at you with a kind of pitiable, pitiable amusement. Um, right. it, and so to the extent that the expression of the anger has some kind of communicative point, they just don't get it. They don't understand it. And so I think psychopaths are not capable of uh, having a certain kind of quality of regard. Now, and that's in virtue of their empathic failures. Now, there's a puzzle that was introduced by Jeanette Kennett uh, about 14 years ago now, um, where she tries to argue that uh, you can't, if you if, that if empathy, if the lack of empathy is the source of uh, psychopaths' uh, responsibility impairments, then it's also going to p- make people uh, who are have, have high functioning autism is going to make them. Uh, also uh, incapable of certain kinds of responsibility uh, because they like empathy too. And so, uh, but she says that's absurd because people with high functioning autism are are, uh, responsible. Uh, So I deal with that puzzle as well. And I suggest that, well, okay, that's one way to go, but autism is another case in which we uh, have a long way to go before we can understand what's going on. And so um, given what empirical work we've got now, anyway, uh, it, there are other ways to uh, interpret what's going on here. One is to just say, well, individuals with high-functioning autism, to the extent that they are incapable of empathizing with others, taking up their perspectives and so forth, um, they just aren't capable of quality of regard. Um, but one of the advantages of the tripartite model is to say, but they can still be responsible in the answerability sense, which they absolutely are. They're able to make qualities. Of, uh, they're able to make judgments about uh, these contrastive reasons. And certainly when their attitudes are expressed, they are expressing uh, aspects of their character. So they can be responsible on two of the three. Um, psychopaths, I want to say, are also not capable of quality of regard, but they may also be capable of judgment. They may also be capable of, uh, and they're certainly capable, I think, of expressing quality of character. 
So right. the payoff, again, is with the tripartite models, you get an explanation of the ambivalence that I think that many people have to psychopaths and also uh, those with autism. And so, and, and the payoff also then is that um, sort of reactive uh, uh, expressions um, uh, will, some of them, in, in the cases where we're talking about agents that are responsible in one or two senses, but not all three, that also gives us some guidance in um, what reactions are warranted. Yes, that right? that's right. That's right. So uh, for the, yeah, the psychopath and uh, individuals with high-functioning autism, anger uh, may not be appropriate, whereas um, a kind of moral disapproval or criticism, that, 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 that's, what, that's a third-person tracker of quality mm-hmm. of judgment. And um, uh, disdain or admiration may be perfectly appropriate. That's what tracks uh, quality of character. Excellent. Um, so uh, let's look at um, a third set of cases. Um, which uh, are uh, cases of moderate intellectual disability. Yeah. And um, uh, then uh, um, the case of, the, uh, of, of Alzheimer's dementia. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about, I mean, these are obvious cases where it looks like uh, um, uh, the agency of, of, of those suffering from these conditions uh, is in some way compromised. Uh, how does the tripartite theory deal with these kinds of cases? Yeah, so... In uh, psychopaths, I think we get um, they have quality of character. Uh, they have uh, some quality of judgment, uh, although they lack access to certain important reasons, and they don't. They lack quality of regard. I think the situation is very different for people with mild intellectual disabilities. I think that they have quality of character. They also can have quality of regard, but they may lack or be have diminished quality of judgment. And so I'm thinking here of those with um, mild intellectual disabilities, those who have a, a facility of engaging with others and in the world and making their way uh, through the world with uh, uh, lots of assistance, um, and then have a, a, a circle of caregivers, and family members. And if you read various kinds of accounts of um, Folks with mild uh, intellectual disabilities, there's just plenty of evidence that they have a kind of overwhelming empathy. They have a great, a great deal of empathy for um, people who are hurt, for people in their family and so forth. And so they're capable of, of seeing facts about other people's ends and their emotional um, uh, states uh, perfectly well. So they have this kind of uh, perceptual capacity, which is necessary for quality of regard. But these are concrete cases where they're seeing it before them. What is partially definitive of have or determinative of having a mild intellectual disability is an inability to generalize uh, from hmm. the concrete to the abstract. And so then to make certain kinds of abstract judgments about the worth of you know, different kinds of courses of action. It's just very, very difficult for them to do. And so to that extent, their quality of judgment is mitigated, I think. But also, as I said, their attitudes when expressed are clearly expressive of a um, certain kinds of cares, uh, which uh, makes those attitudes attributable to them for purposes of admiration and disdain. So they have quality of character. So, again, the tripartite model, what we get when we start off the book is just this kind of vague sense of ambivalence. What I'm trying to do in the second part of the book is to show how the tripartite model 
um, accounts for the different for, for ambivalence, but in different ways, in different cases, depending on the different mm-hmm. empirical details. And is there a special um, wrinkle in the story when it comes to Alzheimer, Alzheimer's dementia? You have no. a special discussion of the the relevance of history. Yeah. Uh, personal of, of a person's history. Yeah, that's right. People, many responsibility theorists have thought that you have to include the history of the agent in order to explain their uh, responsibility or their lack thereof. And what I'm doing there is trying to argue that um, history is valuable. It's valuable to an evaluation of quality of someone's quality of will. Um, uh, but at that time, that is to say, it's right. just epistemically important to fill in the gaps. And here's the, the case of dementia is an interesting new kind of case that shows how history can be epistemically valuable. So uh, go back to that case where your grandfather uh, picks up the, 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 the chocolate at great uh, physical cost, brings it over to you, as my grandfather used to do, and um, and then moves on to the windows looking out and sees birds and then moves on to fiddling with something in the corner. And he's got mild or he's got moderate uh, Alzheimer's dementia. I think it makes um, absolutely no sense to uh, uh, have the kinds of regard based attitudes, anger, or gratitude, because these are communicative. And I think he's no longer capable of understanding that kind of communication. It's also, I think, inappropriate to attribute kind of moral disapproval or approval um, that go along with quality of judgment because his executive functioning has um, been impaired to the point at which he's no longer capable of making judgments about the relative worth of different kinds of actions. But I think nevertheless, that 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 movement, what he did, expresses the trait of character. He's still kind. And so what history does is inform us here in these kinds of cases about whether or not there's a trait that we think has persisted. And, yep, he's, he's just like he always was. He's still kind. He still immediately is getting something for somebody when they walk into the room. And so these are what I call remnants of character. Uh, I think character is the last of the three capacities to go. And those who are moving through the various stages of Alzheimer's dementia are losing regard, losing judgment, can still hold on to expressions of quality of character for some time. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and again, that is, um, uh, I, I thought, a really well done um, uh, chapter of the book. Um, but um, let's move on to the, um, to the, the conclusion. Um, where um, you do a nice job, I think, of wrapping up uh, and, and sort of reviewing uh, the argument that had come before. Um, but I very much appreciated um, the section of the concluding chapter where you discuss what virtues your view, uh, the tripartite view, will have, even to those who are not yet Strassonians or are not Strassonian responsibility theorists. Yeah. You think that there's something that your view offers to people who aren't um, – committed philosophically to this approach. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about that part? Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is good. Cause, um, I don't, I'm not sure if anybody who's read it before has read through to the conclusion. So this is, uh, and I've been <laughs> wanting to, to talk about it because I thought this is a lot of things that are said here, fairly provocative, but yeah, you're right. Um, 
So there are two general kinds of uh, traditions in uh, talking about uh, responsibility. There are the people, the deep self theorists who I'd already talked about. And then there's the really much larger crowd of reasons responsive theorists. And so each the first side says, well, to be responsible, it has to be an expression of your deep self. And the second side says, no, to be responsible, you have to be responding to the reasons that there are. And I think there's something valuable about both approaches. And I think what the tripart theory does is capture both of those approaches, that the deep self theorists are going to be attracted to the attributability stuff, to the quality of character stuff, that the reasons responsive folks are going to be attracted to the quality of judgment uh, stuff. Um, and then um, there's a so there's something valuable uh, and insightful about both approaches, but I don't think they capture all the cases. And so what the tripartite theory does is bring them all into the fold. And so there's something for everybody, as it were. There are also, there's also a tradition um, uh, articulated by Bernard Williams and also Tamler Summers um, of a kind of uh, relativism or kind of skepticism about responsibility. And so the thought here is that um, because there are different practices uh, around the world and through various historical epochs, that um, we're just not talking about there's no single conception of responsibility. And if there's no single conception of responsibility, either we're relativists or there's just no grounds for saying that there's any responsibility at all. That's Summers' uh, meta skepticism. Right. I want to say no. Um, the tripartite theory uh, allows for pluralism about responsibility so that uh, different um, historical traditions, different people across the world emphasize different of these elements in different ways. So there are going to be some societies, ancient Greeks, who really push the character stuff. Uh, some societies like contemporary Western uh, 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 liberal democracies that emphasize the um, regard stuff, the rights and fairness and judgment stuff. And they may uh, press these in different kinds of ways, different strengths, but it's all um, under the general rubric of responsibility that I think is universal. Now, the third uh, feature that I think could be attractive to folks is that the tripartite theory articulates what I think is really attractive about three distinct ethical theories, the three distinct ethical theoretical traditions. So on the one hand, there's virtue ethics, and the connection up to the tripartite theory is just obvious. Virtue ethics is capturing our interest in people's character. So it goes to our quality, quality of character. Um, consequentialist tradition um, is, of course, interested in, in our judgments of worth. And so whether or not some reason is more worth pursuing than another. So it's going to uh, uh, it's going to be involved in the answerability, the quality of judgment uh, aspect of the tripartite theory. Um, but also what's really been a crucial part of the consequentialist tradition, at least for utilitarians, has been uh, the, uh, the notion of uh, the ideal impartial spectator who takes up the perspectives of all affected parties and envisions how they're going to feel if something is done. Well, that's just an aspect of regard. That's what I think is a really important feature of regard is that perspectival understanding. And then the third tradition, ethical tradition, is the Kantian tradition. And again, of course, there are going to be judgments as to the relative worth of various kinds of reasons. So that goes to quality of judgment. But also, there is a really crucial 
um, aspect of Kantian ethics, which involves taking up everyone else's perspective as an evaluative creature. And so that's a kind of evaluative empathy that I think is the other kind of regard. So the Kantian captures both answerability and one kind of regard. The consequentialist captures answerability and the other kind of regard. And then the, then the virtue theory captures this uh, stuff about character. Well, so I think there's something really insightful and attractive about all three of those theories. And the tripartite theory hopefully can capture those insightful elements. Well, fantastic. Um, last question. Uh, you've been very generous uh, with the time, and it's, it's been great talking to you. Um, so what are you working on next? Well, there are uh, a number of, of uh, elements of the book where uh, that, that really are moral psychology and that I'm interested in developing some more. So I mentioned these things in the book, but I don't do much with them. And so I've been working on them um, now to try to develop what I think about them. Um, so one is a uh, uh, project on anger. Uh, I love anger. I think anger is really great. Uh, <laughs> and I want to defend that against a number of uh, recent uh, critics. Uh, another project is on uh, forgiveness. So these are two companion pieces, the anger and forgiveness stuff. And so this is the first time I'm venturing into the forgiveness literature. I've been kind of forced to by uh, various uh, uh, projects that I've committed to. And it's uh, quite a literature indeed. Um, but I think yeah. looking at forgiveness actually can tell us something about the nature of our responsibility practices as well. So there's that. And then I'm, um, I've just been recently awarded a, a, a grant to work on uh, empathy and empathic control. So Congratulations. Uh, thanks. So it falls right out of the, 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 the topic of regard. And so I want to try to figure out um, whether or not there's a kind of control that's a function of our empathic abilities that's along the lines of volitional control and what some think of as rational control, that is making judgments of worth and our attitudes fall in line. I'm thinking that empathy might be like that as well, that I empathize with somebody in a certain way and my regard kicks in in the right sort of way. So I'm interested in um, and also defending empathy against lots of recent uh, haters. Uh, so <laughs> Paul Bloom and Jesse Prinz and to some extent Sean Nichols have been uh, bashing empathy for a while right. and its role in morality and moral judgment. And I want to say I want to defend its role in moral responsibility. I think it's essentialist for obvious reasons. But the big problem. Oh, go ahead. Does that, I'm sorry. One quick. Does that um, reintroduce concerns about the psychopath? Because I take it that part of the, the syndrome there is not only a lack of empathy, but also a lack of self-control. Wow. Yes. Uh, now that you now, now that you <laughs> mention it, I, <laughs> I think that's wow. Yes, thank you for that. I will. Uh, I'll cite you. Yes, I think that's a, a direct connection that okay. I hadn't. I hadn't fully appreciated before. But that's great. Yeah. <laughs> the, the main project, though, is going to be um, in the book. I'm neutral about the what we should think of uh, about the relation between being responsible and being held responsible. Right. And I mean, it's obvious where my sympathies lie. But in the yes. book, I'm trying to be officially neutral. But this is this will be I want to write a project. I want to write a, a paper that defends the response dependent nature of responsibility. Um, 
so that when we are doing this kind of investigative work about the nature of our emotional responses and what their fittingness conditions are, what we're doing is determining the nature of responsibility thereby. So this will be the this will be my argument for trying to bring into the fold all those non-Strassonians out there. This is the I originally wanted to include this project in the book, but it was just going to be uh, too distracting. So but the idea here is to through extended ana uh, analogy with humor and the funny um, to try to show that um, uh, the nature of responsibility really just is a function of what it's fitting to respond to somebody with anger, say. Right. So, well, that's that. All that sounds marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, Dave, you've been um, again very generous, and uh, thanks for talking to us today about your book, uh, Responsibility from the Margins. And I look forward to seeing the products of uh, the more current projects. That's great. I really appreciate this, Bob. It's been a real treat. Well, thank you. Take care okay. now. You've been listening to my interview with Professor David Shoemaker of Tulane University. We're talking about his new book, Responsibility from the Margins, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.